Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Today's podcast is on social work with children who have cancer, also referred to as pediatric oncology social work. Although pediatric cancer is a relatively rare event, making up less than 1% of the cases diagnosed annually, that single case affects the lives of countless others. From a treatment perspective, when a child is diagnosed with cancer, the whole family is diagnosed with cancer. Children are most likely to get cancer in the first year of life, and least likely between the ages of 5 and 14. And if you're a white kid in the United States, you're nearly two times more likely to get cancer than if you're black. One in 300 boys and one in 330 girls will develop cancer before the age of 20. Every year, 2,500 children die from cancers with names like acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is cancer of the bone marrow and also the most common childhood cancer, hepatoblastoma, cancer of the kidney, neuroblastoma, cancer of the central nervous system, Ewing sarcoma, bone cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, cancer of the lymph nodes, and Wilms tumor, cancer of the kidney. Notice that the most common forms of adult cancer, such as lung, breast, and colon, are not included on this list. And it's not just that children get some cancers and adults get others. Among children, the cancers most often found in infants and toddlers are not the same as the cancers most often found in teenagers. For children today, getting a diagnosis of cancer is not the death sentence it once was. Before 1970, most children who got cancer died. Today, survival rates are nearly 80%. Currently, there are about 270,000 survivors of childhood cancer. Consequently, pediatric oncology social workers need to know as much about working with survivors of cancer as they do about issues of death and dying. To help me get a better idea of what being a pediatric oncology social worker entails, I spoke with Dr. Barbara Jones, social worker and faculty member at the School of Social Work at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Jones is the immediate past president of the Association of Pediatric Oncology Social Workers. She's on the editorial board for the Journal of Social Work and End of Life in Palliative Care and the co-director of the Institute for Grief, Loss, and Family Survival at UT Austin. Dr. Jones recently designed and taught the first social work course in the United States on psychosocial oncology. In today's podcast, Barbara and I talked about the role of a pediatric oncology social worker in a multidisciplinary team, with the child, with the family, in a hospital setting, and in the community. We talked about best practices for working with kids with cancer and the role of research in pediatric oncology social work. She talked about practical and ethical issues in pediatric oncology social work, such as consent and assent how to accurately assess a child's pain, and how social workers can take care of themselves. Barbara's holds some powerful and moving stories about the work she's done with children who have died and children who have survived cancer. We ended our conversation with a discussion about how social workers get training in pediatric oncology social work and what some resources are for social workers who would like to know more about working with children with cancer. 
One quick word about today's podcast. I recorded it using a Zoom H2 recorder on location at the Society for Social Work Research annual conference. If you listen closely, you can hear the sounds of San Francisco in the background. A clock chiming, buses loading and unloading passengers, and even some pigeons congregating outside of the interview room. Now, these sounds don't detract from the interview, but I wanted to give fair warning in case you were listening to this podcast anywhere where those sounds might be cause for alarm. So, without further ado, on to the interview with Dr. Barbara Jones and Pediatric Oncology Social Work. Well, Barbara, thanks so much for talking with us today on the podcast about uh, kids and cancer. And my first question for you is, what is pediatric oncology? Well, Jonathan, I'm really glad to be with you today and talk about this area that I'm very passionate about. Um, When you ask me, do you mean pediatric oncology or pediatric oncology social work? Is there a difference? There is a difference. Pediatric oncology is um, a multidisciplinary field of care that encompasses everything from physicians to nurses um, to child life specialists to social workers, nutrition, chaplains, and that's the full interdisciplinary care. Pediatric oncology social work is a specialty discipline both within social work and within pediatric oncology that focuses on social workers caring for and working with children and their families with cancer. So what is the role of a pediatric oncology social worker? That's a very big question. Um, (laughs) So uh, pediatric oncology social workers can have many different roles in both community settings as well as in hospital settings. So they can be working with a child and their family from the moment of diagnosis to help with managing, kind of helping to hold that emotional news, which is really difficult. And so right from the very get-go, ideally you would have that pediatric oncology social worker there upon diagnosis. That person would stay with the family throughout treatment and post-treatment, whether that resulted in a palliative care or end-of-life situation or survivorship. And across that whole treatment continuum and post-treatment, pediatric oncology social workers provide emotional support. They provide assessment, clinical assessment, They provide mental health and uh, emotional interventions for both the children, their siblings, their parents, sometimes their community, sometimes their school setting. I found in my practice that sometimes pediatric oncology social workers also play a role in the multidisciplinary team to help some of the other disciplines deal with the emotional impact of working with children with cancer and their families. Obviously, pediatric oncology social workers also participate in advocacy. Um, They help identify resources for families and children. They spend the time, sometimes we serve almost as a witness to the experience, spend the time with the child and family to help them adjust to the experience they're having, whether it be a hospital stay, an invasive treatment, um, just kind of learning the identity piece of now I'm a kid with cancer and what does that mean and how do I relate to my classmates and I could go on here, Jonathan, so (laughs) I'll stop there. (laughs) As you're describing it, it sounds like a pediatric oncology social worker does exactly what we talk about in schools of social work as sort of ecosystemic practice, you know, working with all the different levels, uh, the micro, mezzo, the macro, the communities, the families, the kids, uh, working with many different uh, service providers. Um, And so if there was a social worker listening to this podcast uh, who recently started working uh, in a situation where he or she was going to be working with kids with cancer, what sort of things would they need to 
would be helpful to know about or think about in terms of being able to provide the best services possible? That's a great question. Social workers working with kids with cancer and their families need to understand that what the children and families seem to need most is one thing, they need someone to talk with about their feelings, about their fears, about the experience. Um, they need someone to communicate and help them figure out what's going on for them. And and so sometimes that is talking. Sometimes those are different interventions like play interventions. Um, but basically they need support around this very difficult process and how am I going to get through this and and manage and and kind of feel well as well as I can throughout the process. Um, They also need advocates that help them with things like making sure that they understand what's happening. Sometimes in a medical setting, entering a hospital is like entering a different land if you don't speak hospital. And so they need a translator. They need somebody to say, you know, many times in my practice, I would be sitting with a child and family. A doctor would come in even some of the best communicative doctors would explain what was happening and then leave the room and then the child or the family or both would turn to me and say what did she just say now some of that is because medical is hard to speak some of that there were actual also language barriers sometimes that's also just about the emotional trauma of hearing your child has cancer you don't take it all in at once. Once you hear that, you don't hear a lot of the other words. And so you need someone there to help you say, this is what happened. And also that sometimes we'd sit right with them and write down, what questions do you have when the doctor comes back? What part is still confusing to you? And I'd pull the doctor or the nurse back in and say, let's go over this part again because this is confusing. So um, a translator, they need an advocate um, to help them get services Sometimes it's the traditional financial support services that we think about applying for um, financial support. There are many pediatric oncology social workers that actually that whole aspect of support happens in another part of the hospital because it's pretty technical, and that frees up the social workers to provide the emotional support. But even having access to the people who are going to help you fill out those forms. But getting support, getting resources also means things like having the opportunity for a -a make-a-wish having the opportunity to have your family with you. Uh, One of the most dramatic occurrences that I can think of that I think many of my pediatric oncology social work colleagues probably have similar stories is um, a young boy who was facing the end of his life and he was well maintained in the hospital. What I mean by that is his pain was under control, his family was supporting him, um, but he really, really wanted to see his uncle who lived in Puerto Rico one last time. And the kid was able to articulate that. And the family did not have the resources to get the uncle here from Puerto Rico. So what are we going to do? So we work with all these amazing organizations that provide, there are many organizations that actually will provide free flights for kids to get treatment. Not as many for families, but we uh, spent one very long day on the phone (laughs) with everyone I could think of until I was able to get uh, an organization to agree to fly that uncle for free from Puerto Rico to upstate New York to so this boy could see his uncle and sure enough after we got the uncle there the boy died and he needed to have his uncle there so sometimes getting resources is beyond what we might think about in another setting so coordinating resources obviously a huge part of it also being a translator and it sounds like a lot of what you've talked about is 
work in a hospital. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned in the beginning that you don't have to work in a hospital to be a pediatric oncology social worker. What are some of the other settings that pediatric oncology social workers work in? Uh, there are a lot of not-for-profits in the community that might provide su- support and services to kids with cancer. Uh, Make-A-Wish is one that I think about. Uh, cancer Care is another one. Uh, so lots of places. Super Sibs, which is a wonderful organization that provides resources to the siblings of children with cancer uh, who are often overlooked and forgotten just because the family needs to those of us that all understand ecosystems understand that the family rallies to support the critically ill child and there's plenty of research that tells us that siblings sometimes have long-term effects from that so super sibs is one that comes to mind so there's lots of different organizations and in fact um I have the fortune of meeting a lot of them in uh, at the Association of Pediatric Oncology Social Workers, which is a very specialized social work membership organization for pediatric oncology social workers that meets annually, and where we have people who are practicing in clinics and hospitals and in the community come together and talk about how do we best, what are best practices to support these kids as they go through this process. So since you just mentioned best practices... What are some of the best practices, um, and and are there evidence-based approaches for working with uh, kids with cancer and their families? That's another great question, and that's, I I hope, where my career is taking me right now. Um, I practiced clinically as a pediatric oncology social worker and really got into uh, social work research to begin to answer that question. How do we best serve children with cancer and their families and what is the evidence? And I'll tell you, like a lot of our fields, uh, we don't have rigorous (laughs) um, randomized control trials that tell us do this, not that. Also, we have to factor in that each child is unique, each family is unique, each moment is unique. So sometimes when I'm asking a child or a family, how are you doing? I don't even ask that question anymore. I'll ask them, how are you doing today? Or how are you doing since lunchtime? Or how are you doing since the doctor came in? So my intervention is going to be changed based on how they're doing, and how they're doing changes all day long. So that's one thing that I'll say. But I did have an opportunity to do some research myself uh, that asked social workers about what they thought were the best practices, particularly in end of life. Um, And that was helpful and illuminated some of the things. And that's where I get some of these ideas about talking about feelings. Uh, Pain and symptom management is actually a role for social work that we sometimes don't think about. Um, Supporting the child and the family and the community and those types of things. Um, We do have some good Institute of Medicine reports that have come out recently that are very helpful for pediatric oncology social workers. One is called Cancer Care for the Whole Patient. That focuses a bit more on adult, but still has some great recommendations. Um, Pretty recent publication, I think, 2008. Uh, There's also an Institute of Medicine report called When Children Die that looks at the palliative care needs. Um, So we have that kind of evidence. We have kind of the collective community evidence bringing experts together for years to talk about what is best. And there's also Institute of Medicine reports on childhood cancer survivors. So we've got that to build on. Um, But every single one of those reports says what is needed is more research. So uh, I spend a lot of my time trying to have clinical social workers think about where do they fit into research and making sure that researchers are staying grounded in practice, as a lot of us do, but trying to do that translation between the practice of pediatric oncology social work and the research of pediatric oncology social work. So what are some of the things that pediatric oncology social workers who are in the field right now uh, do to contribute to 
this knowledge base or this this research and i'm thinking specifically of social workers who might not necessarily be involved in an actual study like what's the bridge what's the connection that's a good question so you know there's this whole continuum and obviously there are those of us that are now playing the academic role um although i still really see myself as a clinical pediatric oncology social worker and i hope i never quite lose that identity um but then across the continuum there are folks that are in the hospital that might be part of a multidisciplinary research team so they might serve in that way. The other thing that social workers do a lot of is helping patients and families understand informed consent. So most children that are treated for cancer are on clinical trials. This is a bit different than adult cancer. In fact, part of the reason that I mentioned to you earlier that we see the survival rates jumping so much in the past 40 years, the survival rates for childhood cancer have jumped to the point that a child diagnosed today has something like an 85% chance of survival. That's because close to 100% of these kids are on clinical trials. So we are improving the science of treating kids with cancer all the time. And social workers are in there. They're explaining informed consent. Sometimes they're getting informed consent. Sometimes they're helping if there are ethical issues around informed consent. Um, So most of pediatric oncology happens in a context of research. And social workers are right in the middle of that like everything else. And then there are also social workers that are PIs on their own intervention studies, too. So you just mentioned that nearly all kids with cancer are involved in some sort of clinical trial Mm -hmm. and that that's one of the things that has contributed to this incredible increase in uh, survival rates and that's different than adults and so one of the things I was wondering was how is uh, cancer in children different than cancer in adults? Do you mean medically or psychosocially or? I think probably in general but more specifically for the role of the social worker. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Well, certainly when a child is diagnosed with cancer, the entire family is diagnosed with cancer. Now, we can say that's true for adults, too, right? And any of us who've had cancer in our family know that when somebody's diagnosed, everybody is involved. But certainly in pediatrics, it's much different because the child is not even legally old enough to consent to their own treatment. So we have some major issues here about consent and assent. You know, so parents are... um, medical, legal medical decision makers because of that. We have plenty of occasions where parents and children don't agree on what should happen, whether it's starting treatment, stopping treatment. So that's another big role for the social worker is facilitating communication within the family uh, and then between the child and the family and then between the child and the medical team and the family and the medical team. There's a lot of communication facilitation that goes on. Um, I'm just going to interrupt real quick. mm -hmm. So uh, when you say consent, you're talking about the person who's legally available to say yes we want this. And when you talk about assent, you're talking about what kids give because they actually don't make their own decisions in that sense. Exactly. Thank you for clarifying. Um, So yeah, consent is the legal term and assent is something that we should be getting in most cases. And most children's hospitals work very hard to get consent and assent for treatment so that not only does the parent legally say, yes, my child can enroll in this study and my child can get this treatment, but the child has some buy-in too and understands in their developmentally appropriate way what's happening to me and understands what it means to receive medical treatment. So uh, issues of family dynamics are huge because this idea about when when a child is diagnosed, the entire family is diagnosed. And what we know about families is that if you change something in that system, everything moves. And so the equilibrium is thrown off and 
social workers are engaging right away with both the child and the family. How are they going to get through this? What are they going to do? What's their plan? Many times, if it's a family where two parents were working, one has to stop working to help the child through the treatment. How are they going to negotiate that? What does that mean for them financially, emotionally, even in the parent's own identity, which is not something they're thinking about at that time, but long term that can become impactful. Um, if there are economic struggles already, which many times there are, how do we support a family that might have already been at their absolute capacity for dealing with struggle and, and bring out the most resilience we can in them? And many times I've been surprised by how incredible families are in their ability to cope with this difficult diagnosis. So um, so issues of consent and assent, issues of uh, family dynamics, um, issues of developmental stage, that a child who's four is very different than a child who's 14. So in pediatrics, we're treating from children who are non-communicative to the adolescent who might be extremely communicative. <laughs> and we have to figure out how to communicate across the spectrum, how to make sure information is age appropriate. Um, a, a story that I have told before in my classes and I will tell you now is that um, language, kids are very, very literal. And so for many types of cancer treatment, uh, one of the standard uh, methods of moving forward is to have the child have a porta catheter inserted actually under the skin in the chest. It's a way to um, draw bloods, administer chemotherapy, and not have to stick the kid a million times, right? So it sounds kind of barbaric that we would insert something in the child's skin, but it actually ends up being less intrusive, less painful. It's a surgical procedure. We get consent and assent from the child and the family for this. But I have, um, it's a difficult thing to comprehend. We even have um, both our colleagues in social work and child life even have kind of these um, dummies that have examples of what it looks like. So you can explain this to a child. But you have to check in with kids and find out, do they understand what we're saying? So one time I was working with a team, and the team was a very strong communicative team doing a fine job, so we all thought, of communicating and talking about a portacath and inserting the portacath and da-da-da and explaining it. And the child was there, and the Grown-ups all left the room, and the kid looked at me and said, are they going to put a cat in my chest? Because all he heard was cat. So while that's an extreme example, that's how literal children are. That's how we really have to check in. So language issues, developmental issues uh, are important. And then sometimes ethical issues. Ethical issues come up over this um, idea about who decides the treatment and what do we do if there's disagreement. Uh, and also ethical issues come up about... In pediatrics, those of us in the medical team, we care a lot about these kids. That can impact, you know, physicians uh, and how they proceed. They're still going to be following their protocols, but certainly their emotions come into play too. So there's lots of ethical issues that can come up. Um, one other area that I just want to talk about here too is I'm not sure that we're always really good at assessing children's pain. So I am concerned that um, we do a good job and that social workers should have a role in finding out what does pain mean, how is pain experienced, how does this child express pain, how will we know they're having pain, how do we make sure that we reduce that uh, as much as we can. You talked about a number of different areas in which um, pediatric oncology social workers practice in the hospital, outside of the hospital, and um, a number of different things that they do. Is there specialty training that a social worker has to get, 
or should get or usually doesn't get in order to be a pediatric oncology social worker? Most people do not get this training in their schools of social work unless they happen to be working with a professor who has a passion about it. So there's a few people who get it at the University of Texas <laughs> at Austin because I um, cannot help but weave it into the classes. Um, and, in fact, we have an oncology course in our social work program. But for most uh, practicing pediatric oncology social workers, they get it on the job. And that's both a, a hard way to learn and sometimes a good way to learn. Um, the best things I've ever learned about pediatric oncology social work, I will tell you, I have learned when I have been smart enough to be quiet and to listen to the kids and families. So there's some learning that has to happen there. However, there's a plenty of ways that we can help support pediatric oncology social workers, both before they get these jobs and after. Um, a lot of people come to pediatric oncology social work after they've been doing something else. I did. I had a few other jobs before I came to this and found it as kind of my passion. Um, so there's usually a good, strong skill set in social work. And then how do I translate that to this population? We in um, pediatric oncology social work talk about how there seems to be a divide, that somewhere in the first couple of years, and I don't know if this has been empirically tested, um, people figure out whether or not this fits. And so you get in, you try it, you see if you like it. If it doesn't, if it isn't a fit, you move on pretty early. If you don't move on, there's some serious longevity in this field. There's people who really see this as a calling. One of the best ways to get uh, specialized training is through the Association of Pediatric Oncology Social Work, where we have an annual conference and meeting. And that is where we talk about direct practice. How am I going to help people present both their empirically supported and their practice supported interventions, applications? The learning there is tremendous. In fact, we have a whole new worker seminar that we do for folks that are new in the field to help them do that. So that is one way um, that we get that kind of training out there. Sometimes you can get specific training online. So NASW has some trainings online about oncology social work. It's not pediatric-specific. Um, sometimes you can get uh, specialized training in end-of-life care, which can be helpful to you, and you can get specialized training in pediatric end-of-life care. Uh, we do have a social work in hospice and palliative care network that meets annually as well. We're meeting this year um, that talks about specifically how do we do palliative work. There's also some tremendous training opportunities that come out of the Lance Armstrong Foundation, the American Cancer Society. Um, so you have to seek it out, but there are ways to get some of that training. And then a lot of it is done by mentorship, really, by that clinical uh, supervisor there in the hospital, by reading everything we can, by talking with people, uh, and coming together with colleagues. So how might a social worker support a uh, kid and family at the end of that kid's life? And conversely, how might a social worker uh, support a, a kid and a family who's surviving? Well, as we talked about, each situation is going to be unique, but there are some ways that we can think about supporting children and families at the end of life. One of those is children and families often need a witness to the experience. So just being present and figuring out how to be there without being intrusive, figuring out how to offer interventions that may be nonverbal, uh, that may, you know, 
sometimes it's about struggling with your own futility because you feel like you want to do so much. You're probably pretty heart connected to the family. Um, and you can't take it away. You can't fix it. You can't even take the pain away. I don't have a right to. So how am I going to sit there? And so getting comfortable witnessing and sitting with pain sounds kind of harsh, but really being in the presence of that and not shrinking is incredibly supportive. If you think about the times in your life when you've been really struggling with something, to have somebody who will just listen and says to you, I can't fix this, but I'm not going away. I'll be here. That's the intervention. Um, So I think about that. In addition to that, we need to certainly do a full assessment and think about cultural context and all of that. But it's important to do the best we can to facilitate communication from the child with the child. Make sure the child understands what's going on. I will ask children, tell me what's happening. And even if they say, well, it's right there in the report. Yeah, I know, but that's a bunch of, I want to hear what you, you tell me because I'm checking for the kid who thinks he's having a cat put in his chest. You know, I'm checking it out. I've learned the hard way to ask. So at the end of life, certainly, I'm going to say, tell me what's going on. What do you think's happening? It's not uncommon at all for children to protect their parents from their own suffering, even dying children. And so I've had plenty of kids say to me, Barbara, I know things aren't going well. And I can tell because I can, I, can, I can feel, I know my body, I've had cancer off and on for 10 years, and I know something's different. Or I can just feel it in my doctor's face. You know, I know my doctor well enough. I've known her for 10 years. Um, but don't tell my mom. Don't tell my mom I'm dying because I don't want her to be upset. Conversely, the mom may also get you in the hallway and say, I know what's going on with him. Let's not tell him I don't want him to lose hope. So there's a place for a social worker right there to help each member of the family be able to communicate directly with each other because kids have the same right to end-of-life planning, to end-of-life communication. If we think about the work that hospice does, both with adults and with children, kids have a right to have those conversations with their family, to, to say, I love you, to say, don't forget about me, All those things, kids have a right to say that, parents have a right to it, and so we have to sometimes help bring up the uncomfortable conversations. And it's about being honest. It is very hard to tell anybody bad news. Very hard. It's hard for for doctors to tell adults bad news. It's really hard to tell a kid that you're likely to not survive from this disease. That's very difficult. So we also help tell. We help saying, if, if we're at that stage, we may say, can I... You know, do you want me to be with you when you talk with your child? Do you want to have the doctor do it? Should we do it? Well, how are we going to do this? So we're constantly getting the message out about honesty. Um, sometimes there's actual end-of-life planning. I had one child I worked with that part of her end-of-life plan was she had a bunch of stuffed animals, and she decided who was getting what. That was her end-of-life planning. Somebody had to ask her, so she got to do that, and that was incredibly meaningful. I have one of them myself, so to this day in my office. Also working with the family about arrangements. And we really can. I think it is a misnomer to say that that completely obliterates hope because I think you can have hope in the midst of this. It's just that what you're hoping for changes. So in the beginning, the family may hope for cure. The child may hope for cure. We may hope for cure. But if you get to a different stage, you might hope for, I've had parents say to me, I hope my child's pain-free. I hope I have the courage to get them through this. 
I hope that we will, um, you know, bring in all their best friends and, um, you know, their favorite items. I hope that we can get them home. I hope they can die. So my point being is that we have to keep facilitating hope while maintaining honesty. So it's a lot about being a witness, being an advocate, being a communicator, being willing to start some difficult conversations, um, being willing to intervene when you don't know what to do. That is a scary place. But to just say, I'm going to sit here. And sometimes I've actually said that to families instead of just sitting there like, they might wonder, why am I still sitting here? No. Um, I have said to families, I'll, you know, if you'd like, I can, I can just be here. So all of that is very, very helpful when we think about end-of-life decision-making, making sure that families are fully informed about what their choices are, and, uh, again, advocating for pain control. Sometimes we don't get that right. Social workers can take a role in that advocacy. Social workers can also use non-pharmacological interventions to assist uh, in pain control. So that's when I think about end-of-life. Um, those are ways that social workers help. When we think about survivorship, um, there are, in addition to the children that we might work with directly, so the pediatric oncology social worker works with a child who then survives, um, ideally we have a way to help transition that child from being on active treatment to this identity as a survivor, both transition them kind of emotionally, but also if I was six when I got treated, I may not even know what happened in my body, right? But now I'm 16 or I'm 26. I'm going for a job. I'm thinking about getting married, maybe having a kid. I need to know what happened in my body. I need to know what the what we call late effects are, um, common late effects, whether there are cardiac uh, toxicities or other concerns, infertility, fertility concerns. Um, ideally, we're having those conversations on the front end, so we're doing some preventative work, particularly around fertility. But... Um, Making sure that the child, now survivor, sometimes adult, has actual written information about what happened, what their treatment was, and that they can take that with them through their lives so that when they meet a new doctor as a 26-year-old, they can say, I had cancer, this is what happened, these are the treatments I got, and that helps them have long-term health care, health promotion. There are some risk factors post-cancer in there dependent upon the cancer, but it is really important to stay in tune to health promotion needs for this population, risk of secondary cancers, uh, risk of cardiac events, etc. It really depends on the cancer. But, but knowing what those are and then helping create health-promoting interventions for these kids slash adults uh, is really, really important. Ideally, this is done as an interdisciplinary team. The other thing that I'll say is that Recent estimates say there's something like 270,000 childhood cancer survivors in the United States right now. So you may not be working in a childhood cancer setting, and you may be working with a childhood cancer survivor. So being able to figure out, is that part of a person's narrative? The person I meet at 29 in a couple session, how do I find out if that's part of their narrative? Because that might be impacting their life now. It likely is impacting their life now or their identity. So keeping open to the fact that there may be people who have had this experience who might not disclose it upon first meeting. In fact, there's we've done some research around how and when people disclose. And um, so that's another issue. People don't always come out and say, you know, hi, I'm a childhood cancer survivor. Um, but it may be impactful for you as a clinician in another setting, too. So, Barbara, thank you so much for talking with us today about pediatric oncology social work. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for the opportunity because, as you can tell, I feel very passionate about these children and their families and about the role that social work can play to help them. So I was really glad to be here. 
I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast. Thank you.